0: listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest mixed-race bisexual polyamorous atheist comic book nerd cat mom mask-making vertigo having for the last four days podcaster in this podcasting game. This is episode 112, 112, and it is a special extra episode of Militantly Mixed because I don't drop two episodes a week typically, but you'll learn in a few seconds why I had to this week. Uh, earlier this week, you would have heard the regular episode on Tuesday, which was my interview with Sage, one of the co-directors of retention at UC Berkeley's Mixed at Berkeley organization. All throughout the month of October, they will be hosting Mixed Month, and you can access information on that through all of their social media, which is Mixed at Berkeley on Twitter, on Instagram. Their website is also Mixed at and if you would like to hear the various podcasts that they have in association with Mix Month, you can go to Spotify and I believe you can just search Mix Month or Mixed at Berkeley, and you'll get um, the various podcasts associated with Mix Month this month on their Spotify channel. In addition to that, they have workshops and speakers throughout the month. so you'll want to get up on their social media so you can see who all is speaking. And as it happens, a number of people that are either doing workshops or speaking at Berkeley's Mixed Month have also been guests on Militantly Mixed. How about that? Uh, So yeah, check that out. It is going on all throughout the month of October. And we want to make sure that regardless of whether or not we're university students, we want to support our mixed cousins getting their education and have access to all of the different speakers that are a part of their event this month. I'm really glad to be part of the podcast that was associated with mixed month. And I look forward to being a support system, help aid future podcaster for any mixed at Berkeley event, because I really enjoyed being a part of uh, this process with them this month. I was a real, I was really honored to be invited. Uh, So that was the first episode this week. The second episode this week, our special extra episode I had a chance to sit down with one of the organizers of the upcoming Blasian March, which is taking place in Brooklyn, New York on Sunday, October 11th. That is why I'm releasing this episode early because I want you to hear about this event in case you're in the area and you'd like to attend. The Blasian March is a Black, Asian, and Blasian solidarity march. It comes in two parts. The first part will be Uh, various speakers of Black, Asian, trans, and queer identities. And then the second part will be the actual Solidarity March. Because this month's militantly mixed panel discussion on Thursday, October 15th, is about activism while mixed, I reached out to one of these organizers to say, hey, this is something I'm talking about this month. Would you like to attend? We jumped on Zoom for a few minutes or what we expected to be just a few minutes to chit chat and and get a little feel for each other to see if they were going to participate in the event. And within minutes, I knew, oh, crap, I need to press record and we need to lay down an episode. And so that's what we did. My guest today is Rohan Jolie. And just within minutes, I was absolutely in love. I want to adopt Rohan. And I really, really hope that I get to know this person for the rest of my life. The energy, the the just utter celebration of their entire identity made me so happy throughout this conversation. So I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you all too. Again, if you want to attend the Blasian Solidarity March, it is on Sunday, October 11th. It is happening in Brooklyn, New York. You can find information on it in the show notes. You can find information on it on the militantly mixed social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I will put links on it in the Facebook group and on the Facebook page. So Really happy to share this with you. But before I do that, just want to make a few announcements or reminders. On Thursday, October 15th, which is this is going to be like a crazy busy day for me. I can't believe that this is how it happens. Uh, at 2 p.m. Pacific time, Thursday, October 15th, which is next week, I will be speaking at Sierra College's Pride event. I have a session about intersectional identity. This is the second time I am attending the Pride event to speak on intersectional identity. I have attended their Pride events. This will be my third time attending their Pride events. But the second time that I'll be speaking on intersectional identity, there will be links in the Facebook pages and on the social media so that you can figure out how to gain access to watching that if you would like to watch it live. And then also on Thursday, October 15th, October 15th is the third Thursday of the month. And on the third Thursday of every month now, we do militantly mixed live stream panel discussions. And the topic for this coming live stream will be activism while mixed. And our guests on that panel will be who you're hearing from today, Rohan Jolie and Asian Soph. Asian Sof, you have not heard from directly. Yet, we haven't had a whole episode yet, but I have used clips from a conversation that we did record before in previous episodes. So you've kind of heard of Asian Soph before, but not a full episode yet. We're going to get that down for the future. But uh, Asian Soph is a very big activist here in the Los Angeles area, um, involved in Yellow Peril and Asians for Black Lives. So this is going to be an awesome conversation. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what it's like to have a conversation with both Asian Sof and Rohan Jolie because it's going to be dope. Um, but that's going to be also on Thursday, October 15th. That'll take place at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. And the link and the events and everything like that will be in the Facebook page, the Facebook group. Um, There'll be information about it in the Instagram and Twitter soon, and I'll also get that up on the militantlymixed.com website as well. And lastly, before we get into this episode, there is a new easy way to access the t-shirt shop for Militantly Mixed logo gear. You can now go to just regular old militantlymixed.com and look for the tab that says Teespring. That is where you can now get the new logo shirts and the mugs and the tote bags and then there is also a shop page and that will be for the items that I actually have myself, the pins, the stickers, the masks, things like that. Um, I did order some fabric with the new militantly mixed logo and it came in terrible, terrible quality. Uh, just arrived today. So I have to get that reprinted and make them pay for it and everything like that. So those will probably be delayed if you have pre-ordered them. Uh, originally was planning on having those uh be shipped out by November 1st. It looks like it's possible since this will have to get reprinted and sent to me. They may not be available till, I'm hoping, the second week of November, but I won't know for sure until I actually have the replacement fabric in my greedy little paws. So you can still pre-order them. Uh, I will let you know what dates the actual masks will be sent out, though, as soon as, I, as soon as I know. Okay, I think that's good enough. Let's get into it. Without further ado, please help me in welcoming our latest cousin and hopefully my future adopted child. To the Militantly Mixed Family, Rohan Jo Lee. So this is going to be a special episode of Militantly Mixed because it was not planned necessarily. Uh, We were going to get you on the show eventually, but we did not know we were going to be recording today. So thank you. Why don't you introduce yourself and let everybody know why we are here today?
1: Oh, my God. So hi, my name is Rohan Jolie. Um, I am uh, Black, Asian, um, so Black, Chinese, Indian, Filipinx, queer person in my gender is firebird that's my identity category and i'm here to talk a little bit about the blasian march which is a black asian and blasian solidarity action happening in new york
0: i'm really excited about this so the way that i found out about you is i was i'm a member of the blasian unite group on on facebook and this is the first time that i've really been in a group that reflected closer to what i feel like in my identity than any other mixed group that i've been a, a part of before And a week or so ago, you posted about an event that you were going to be um, spearheading in New York. And I instantly hit you up with, um, you know, not trying to promote my show on this group, but can I talk to you? (laughs) (laughs) But also would like to promote my show on the group. Um, so I, I saw that you were doing a, an event in, in New York that is the Black, Asian and Blasian Solidarity Rally, and you just described it to me a little while ago. It's in two parts. Why don't you tell everybody about the event itself and then we'll get into your story?
1: Yeah, so um, it is in two parts. Uh, the first part is a um, rally about and it's on education, about parallel struggles between Black and Asian communities with racism. So, for example, how police brutality affects both black and Asian communities, or, you know, what does immigration liberation mean for black and Asian communities? Um, that's the first part, and all the speakers will be women and LGBTQ identified folks. And the second half is going to be a march, which will be a total celebration of all three communities. So everyone's be marching together celebrating our lives together, and it's going to be beautiful.
0: So let, let's hear a little bit about about kind of your upbringing. So your Asian mix is is pretty heavy in and of itself. How, growing up, how did you identify the most? What did you have the most access to? Um,
1: it's always fascinating because I grew up in a multicultural household as well. So my father was from Jamaica and my mother's from New York. And it was always interesting because we, my at least the way I experienced growing up, we were never raised. Well, obviously we were raised to think ourselves as black, but there was never any shame or pick one um, for being Asian. So like, that's good. You know? Yeah. Like, so both my parents are black and Asian mixed. And um, so both my parents are Chinese. Uh, My mom has the Filipina and according to my grandmother, my dad has the Indian and um, even like, you know, um, so, for example, we grew up in Georgia, and um, you know, my parents got involved with the National Association of Chinese Americans, and you know the the at least the co-chair or person who was running the organization never really had a problem with us being black. It was like an instant welcoming. It was like, oh my goodness, like you are <laughs> you know Chinese. welcome to the party. it was and I feel like the biggest times I ever had a real challenge dealing with having to pick one was like interacting with white people or interacting with like, when I was growing up, as like an adult, that became more of a problem when interacting with folks who are either only Asian or only black.
0: Mm. Yeah. So uh, similar to you I grew up with a or well, at least I grew up with a lot of mixed cousins a lot of my cousins we we lived together and things like that and since we were all mixed we kind of felt like we were the normal It wasn't until we got into school that we realized that there were people that weren't like us and that there were more of them than there were of us. And so that's that's when you start to feel different and live in isolation and things like that, Um, at least in, in my case. But also my my Asian was very segregated from the rest of my stuff. Like my Japanese was that I was Japanese at home. I wasn't even Japanese in public because my mother was a teen mother and she had a baby with a black man. So there was a lot of things to hide from the Japanese community because they weren't very open to mixedness and they weren't very open specifically to blackness. So I I felt that my Asian had to be separate and that I got to be black most often, even though I looked the way that I looked. Um, I identified more with my blackness and I was around black people more often. But in your case, it wasn't really until you were around Monoracial black that you weren't just accepted for being able to claim all the things. Yeah,
1: um, and that was, I think, part of the biggest issue. I think a lot of mixed folks have is this constant like, "Well, which one are you? Like, yeah, 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 pick one or the other." Like, like I, I remember, you know, lots of times the people who were monoracially black would always, you know, ask me, "Why do you hate being black? Why do you hate your race?" Yeah. like, it doesn't make sense. When it doesn't all, make sense.
0: It
1: doesn't make sense. I'm telling you, I'm mixed. I'm both at the same time. Like, why is that complicated?
0: Right.
1: And then, you know, on, on the Asian side of, of, of the conversation, it's like, this is my observation, but I feel like very often folks who are mixed and accepted as Asian are normally white and Asian mixed presenting.
0: Right. You know,
1: like folks who are like black and Asian mixed presenting, you're just black and there is no room for that identity to be respected.
0: Right. I think that's actually something pretty common that comes up on this show is that if your phenotype reads as black, you're going to be black. And in embracing your mixedness, you're accused or could be accused of not loving your blackness, which is kind of wild because you're you're either asking of us to deny Part of our family, loved ones, culture, or to or to say that there is something specifically dominant about, about just being black. And and yes, there are things. You walking down the street versus me walking down the street, you are most likely going to be accosted by the police or, you know, you're going to be mistreated in a different way than I'm going to be mistreated. I am going to be mistreated also, but in a different way, probably where we probably have some crossover is we both are LGBTQ plus identified people. And it appears that we both live our queerness out loud. So if we're in those spaces and there are the cishet folks you know, the folks that have anti towards us in there, we might both deal with a certain kind of thing or whatever. So yes, there are aspects about our lives that we're gonna code a certain way and and the mistreatment that we receive will be coded against those different groups. That absolutely is a thing. But internally and how how we maneuver within our lives or within our families is, I'm never not aware of being black or Japanese. And because I grew up in predominantly black spaces, I am always black. I'm almost like I describe myself as hierarchically black because that is the culture and those are the people that I am around the most. That is the people I have access to. I also know I look like this and that I'm not going to necessarily be treated the same way. And so for me to deny my Asian heritage would be very strange because it's part of the reason why my, I look the way that I look is because of my Asian heritage. Mind you, I code Black a lot of cases, like when people see me and my face and things like that, Black folks can tell. But there's still going to be those moments in which if I try to deny my Japanese or even my British heritage and just maneuver as a Black woman, I'm going to be treated like a a Rachel Dolezal or someone who's pretending. And I'm not pretending. I did grow up that way, but I don't look it and I know I'm going to be treated slightly different. I know that I'm going to be received differently. So in those cases... I do get it, but I'm not going to sit here and deny what i mix with because these are the people that I grew up around. These are the people that I, the culture that I was raised in, the food that I eat, the music that I love. I'm going to rock out just as hard if I hear teko drums as if I hear African drums, The both are going to affect me. You know, my body is going to respond to both things. You're not going to tell me that one is, um, that there's one I have to pick. That's going to be really tough for me. And I imagine if you're immersed in the culture, that's going to be really tough for you. Was there ever a period of time that you felt like, and forgive the term because I don't mean it in the negative way that it's going to come out, but was there any ever a time when you felt like you could hide comfortably in Blackness just to not be made fun of as a mixed kid or whatever it is?
1: Um, most likely. <laughs> I mean, obviously we all have certain survival politics um you know the way we code and how we transition or how we survive in a white society will always you know be an unfortunate but necessary guiding principle on how we code ourselves and let ourselves be coded so I think for me I'm sure I have at some point in time hidden my Asian-ness I'm not going to deny that um I can't necessarily specifically right now pinpoint a, t- a point in time, but, you know, that's part of living in a white, toxic, masculine, I right. society where we have to, you know, put parts of ourselves away for the sake of surviving in these spaces.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and especially as we maneuver both as mixed race and as um, LGBTQ plus identified, like, There are moments, there are real moments of evaluating safety and it's like, am I, what's, what's going to get me through this particular moment? Is my ethnicities going to, is my sexual orientation going to, is it hiding my sexual orientation or hiding my ethnicities that are going to? It's a real, it's a real issue. We have to maneuver, uh, especially as really, really intersectional people, we have to maneuver, um, there's a lot of codes we got to jump through. It's hopscotch. <laughs> it's hopscotch <laughs> in some spaces for for real. So, what gets you to being an activist or an advocate? Well, I guess let me first ask you: What of any of those terms do you identify as radical activist, advocate, militant? What is what is it for you? I guess
1: activist would be the closest thing, but now that I am very much marching with a lot of black queer organizers here in New York, a lot of black trans people in New York, I, I guess I I do use the term organizer, but like in the context of, this is a part of my queerness. This is a part of my blackness. This is part of my Asian-ness. It's not, something to be like intellectually separated from all of those right. identities you know
0: yeah i find i find i i struggle with using the term although i wish to i struggle with using the term activist because i'm not a frontline activist, you know, I don't, um, I'm not physically uh, as able to put myself in spaces. And part of that has to do with anxiety of being around people. And part of it has to do with physically, I'm not the strongest things like that. Like, you know, there's different things going on there. But I would like to use that terminology. I think for me, it makes more sense to use advocate because I try to at least elevate my folks that are doing that work for us. And then militant just because my mentality is very militant in terms of like, organizing through our cultural groups, our queerness, gender identified situations. Like I think in those particular cases, um, militant works for, for me. But it's it is tough. It is hard to find a thing. But what gets you to do the work, regardless of how you identify in it, what gets you to do the work?
1: <laughs> oh, it gets into the work. Um I would say my spirituality, um, I, I I deeply believe in Sort of like ancestral power and the ancestors that guide you. And, you know, for me, I, I really didn't join the front lines until I read um, Carlos Bolosan's America is in the Heart. Okay. It's his like autobiography. And he goes through, you know, his experiences talking about you know, living in the Philippines and seeing just the incredible um, economic disparities coming to the United States. And then just surviving out in the West, in California and in Alaska, and just seeing like the clear and blatant racial violence towards Asian people. Mm -hmm. And it was after I read that book, because I read that book when I was trying to like explore my Filipino roots and being like, okay, how do I merge this into my experience as an adult? Because actually my family, we found out very late, um that we were filipino <laughs> oh, okay From, by accident um in my grandmother's bible there was like one of our ancestors birth certificates that just said father scotland mother philippines so we were like okay. oh my god we're filipino so.
0: <laughs>
1: and you know when, when i tell people that they're always like oh but it's so it's so small a uh, a part of genetic background and I think that's one that's also part of colonial mentality, how we try to belittle other people's uniqueness to fit into certain right. molds, And then, you know, for me, every minute I celebrate my Filipino roots, every minute I celebrate my Chinese roots, I'm decolonizing my body, you know, because of the colonial trauma, the forced migration of Filipinos to the Caribbean, right. where my mother's side of the family is from. And then that narrative being erased, as soon as I uncover it, I've decolonized a part of my body. Right. So all of that really is part of what's fueling me in this this movement. Yeah.
0: No, that, yeah, that speaks pretty deep to me. So I, I don't view myself as very spiritual, but I'm really, I feel guided by the, like I, I think about the ancestors, I feel guided by the ancestors, not in a way of which I feel like they're sitting above my shoulder or anything like that. I feel like they're in here. They're they're dictating aspects of the kind of person that I have become through this. And that that's how it taps in for me. And when I see that, somebody tries to say oh well that's a really small part of you like oh it was so long ago how could you even feel like how do you even have access or the right to access that if you're not going to tell me that it hasn't made a mark that it hasn't imprinted in here somewhere then i think you don't really understand. <laughs> and I definitely feel like those marks are being made, the, those connections are being made. And the way that um, that has sort of become more validated in, in my belief system or, or how I approach it is that I was able to finally find out where in Africa my ancestry comes from, and it was from Gabon. And it was from three different tribes in Gabon. And then from those three tribes that we come from, the the Kota, the Atike, and the Sogo, there were elements in the code of people that I could see in my actual family, like my living family. And if that's not the ancestors talking to you in some kind of way, shape or form, then I'd, you know, Again, that's one of those things where it's like I don't know how I don't know how to answer your question, people. <laughs> and then and then there's other things like they are uh, the coda particular in particular were um, a polygamous tribe, and I'm polyamorous. Those are two different things. I'm not a polygamist. I don't support that only one partner gets to have multiple partners. But as a polyamorous person, I feel like oh maybe there's something to it that my inclination towards multiple partners in a loving res- way is from my heritage. So there's little things like that where I feel like. They're dictating things from the past in some way, shape or form. And that speaks a lot to me. I also think in your particular case, Filipino people, especially here in the United States, have have to be very heavily in activism, especially here in California. Let me even go tighter here in California, where I'm from. They especially have to be because of what brought them here, you know, what got them to to come to America and how they've had to survive within small communities and, and keep their culture as the, the American-ness tries to separate us from all of our things. Uh, Filipino people here in California have huge, massive communities, and they have to stake their claim to, to be protected because they get mistreated. They had been getting mistreated quite a bit before they started to rise up. So I don't know if there was much activism in other parts of the states or, or even in the, the Caribbean or anything like that. But with the Filipinos that I grew up around here in California, they were frontline people. They were marching alongside, you know, the Brown Revolution workers that were out here in the California and things like that. Like they were involved in that as well because they were very much a part of it. So to think that that's not in there, in you, some way that you come from a people that fight for themselves, that have to fight for themselves, who have been colonized by everyone. I mean, especially the Filipino folks, they have been colonized by everyone and for multiple generations. And that's why as a people, they themselves are very... Uh, ethnically and culturally mixed. So of course that made an imprint. It had to make an imprint to get into you and the bravery it takes to leave where you're from to go somewhere else too. I think that's a big thing there as well. How have you found ways to tap into it to find the people that you come from? Oh,
1: well, um, lots of reading. Um, I'm a huge book nerd.
0: So
1: <laughs> um, I love literature. Um, and then... You know, when I was in college, I was part of a Filipino student organization. When I left college, uh, it's been a couple of years, but then I wound up joining um, Anakabaya Chicago. They are a Filipino nationwide youth-led um, organization, but they have, like, chapters in, like, you know, a lot of major cities. So I was with them for a while. And, like, it's always been interesting because especially as especially the Filipinos, I have always... It's never really been a question of like my Asian-ness, it's been like an instant acceptance. It's like, oh, okay, great. You're mixed, moving on. <laughs> and yeah, like to, to your earlier point, like, you know, Filipinos, we have this centuries long, very, very long history of resilience, of resisting, of fighting back, you know, like we have, you know, Lapu-Lapu, who was, our, who was a national hero because he killed Magellan, the colonizer, in battle. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> or even here um, in the States, um, you know, how Filipino and Mexican farm workers collaborated to develop unions um, led by, I think, Larry Itliong and Cesar Chavez, for example, and then you know our constant resistance against dictatorships um, in in the motherland. So we have this long legacy, and I think it's it's amazing that Filipinos continue that, that we remain, you know, proud in who we are. And this is a part of us. Like, I guess, yeah, right.
0: Yeah. I mean, the constant fighting, it gets in there. It's got to, it's got to imprint in some way, shape or form. And I mean, I think honestly, without knowing you very well, I think it's the difference between you reading and reading and doing you know what i'm saying like there's a lot of people who probably would feel a lot like you and and read the books and get the information get the education but the difference between what makes them organize or what makes them step out and do a march or or anything like that who knows but i feel like that there's something in there you come from people who fight who fought for themselves for survival and you're doing it you're doing it as well not to mention the other communities that you come from, too. There's different elements in in all aspects of, of the community. So something that you mentioned before we got started is that um, the, the, the focus on sort of what is happening to Black and Asian trans women in particular, that, I mean, we should all know, especially people who listen to the show at this point, should all know that trans women are the highest targeted, most rapidly murdered people, especially here in the United States. And it's not... There's not enough work being done to protect them. There is a big community behind the support, but it's the people in power who aren't helping and participating. And so doing an event like this helps raise those voices and gives people a chance to to personalize it a little bit more. And in talking to you, it made me realize the way that I curate my, I told you the way I curate my social media, I see more stories about about Black trans women than I do about Asian trans women. And I didn't even realize I was missing that until you said that your event was including them. Um, What sort of resources or what access have you had that is part of what generated your interest in participating and organizing an event like this to help look after our Black and Asian trans sisters?
1: Yeah, so... Uh, Just to, like, elaborate on, you know, parallel white supremacist violence against um, trans and Asian women. You know, recently in the news, we all read of the shooting of Roxanne Moore, who is a trans woman in Pennsylvania. Um, She was having an acute mental health crisis and police shot her 16 times. And um, she is in the hospital right now, so it's it's i i wanted to create another space where people can learn about her story but then pair that up with the story of other women like jennifer laude and so jennifer laude was a Filipino trans woman um who had gone to a hotel room with a u.s marine named joseph pemberton and um he actually murdered her and left her in the hotel room and when the when he was going to trial you know, his lawyers claimed that she raped him because he did not know she was trans. And so he was, you know, found guilty. Um, I don't remember exactly which charges he found guilty of, but I remember that, that I remember that the judge had reduced his sentence because, you know, he, for some reason sympathized with this claim that, you know, she had raped him, which is clearly on ground. It makes no sense. And, um, Recently, a few weeks ago, the Filipino president, Rodrigo Duterte, actually pardoned Pemberton um, of his crime. So the anniversary of her murder is actually on October 11th, which is something that I was recently educated on by my Filipino activists out here in New York. So we're going to hold space to educate us all about these sorts of things. And um, this kind of came about um, on a personal note because I was... Organizing with other folks um, who are Asian American, are straight men, who were kind of mobilizing the Chinese community. Um, And, you know, I kind of bounced around this idea in the group, but um, leaders kind of shot it down, said that wasn't their goal or their mission. And so I kind of just kept with the group um, to organize stuff for them. So I remember on one March, um, I was part of the rally organizing um, the voter registration table and, and I was helping, you know, put that stuff away. And as I was coming back to the start of the March, it turns out that the leaders had actually started the March without me and like left me behind. And Some of my friends stayed, but it was honestly a very traumatic experience to recognize that I was doing all this labor for these men and they basically abandoned me and put me at risk because, you know, there are cops running around who are you know, homophobic, racist. There are other people who may be homophobic or racist because every time I go to a march, I carry my pride flag with me and I carry the Philadelphia pride flag. So it has the black and brown stripes at the top. So because I was put at such risk, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do my own march, and there will be no straight men <laughs> talking. <laughs> like straight men, you have enough platforms. <laughs> you have a lot of
0: platforms. You have, you, have, platforms. <laughs> you have a lot.
1: So it basically became this will be a platform for women and trans women and queer folks to speak only, <laughs> and I will honor that all the way through.
0: Right, uh, and I think that that's important to to recognize. And and it's a it's a terrible aspect of finding and losing community that we experience when we realize that we're othered either through our multi-ethnic identity or through our queer identity that we're good enough for labor but not a good enough for the photos the photo mm-hmm. ops and things like that no. um, and the fact that you were put at risk literally put at risk by being left behind because there was going to be no one to witness if anything happened to you like that that is severe, and it, it's such a weird part of activism too. Because you think at the very base of what we're what we're all fighting for in any sort of activist situation is visibility and protection. But to make it exclusive, to you know, to be like, yeah, we're we're Asian solidarity, but only for straight a- or only for you know straight Asian men or such situ- or whatever it was. Like, what was the difference between allowing you to work but not be a representative? Like, that doesn't mm-hmm. make it any sense to me. It is so baffling. And I noticed that in a lot more of these organizations that are popping up, solidarity ends up being a big part of the platform because you, you start to realize just how segregated even activism can be. And if it's not segregated for the purpose of safety, like in this particular case, we're trying to elevate the voices of Black and brown trans women or elevate the voices of, or, or really elevate the stories about what's happening to Black and Brown people in the queer community and anything like that. In that case, some exclusivity in terms of safety is there. Straight men have it. They're fine. They don't need this space. They, exactly. They're fine. They're going to yeah, be fine. Totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to, to make this space, uh, in terms of like who's going to be present, who's going to be vocal, that, that's important. Not to say straight and, and cis... Uh, activists can't be there but in their case they should be there to be the barrier from the outside from the people that are going to cause harm i absolutely believe that
1: yeah like, like you're definitely it's one thing i'm definitely noticing a lot more that i am getting more on the front lines is uh, there is a lot of cis toxic masculinity and a lot of imitation of that toxic cis masculine (laughs) behavior and it's a hard process it's a hard conversation because I know everyone, everyone is up in arms, everyone wants to go, but we also have to keep working on ourselves and decolonizing our own minds of that sort of like toxic masculine behavior or imitation of that toxic masculine behavior. So yeah, of course, obviously straight cis men are welcome, but yeah, you're here to listen. You're here to learn. You're not here to, to demand space. You have enough space. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry.
0: A whole lot of space. Yeah, absolutely. So since you started to to do this organizing work, what what have you gotten the most out of it personally? And what do you hope to achieve more broadly?
1: Oof, for myself, I've gotten the most out of it. Um, mm, oof, <laughs> that's a hard question. Um, I feel like for me, I've gotten the most, uh, I guess being learning more diligence, learning how to pace myself. Cause you know, a lot of the planning, Is Actually, all the planning is volunteer-based. All the planning is based on what you're in capacity to do. And, you know, I I would never... And I'm so grateful for every single member of my team, all the organizers who are working with me. I'm so grateful for all their labor. And it's taught me to be more, you know, grateful to the community. It's taught me to be more diligent and, like, learning how to, like, stop and take care of myself. Because there definitely have been some days where I was just, like, You know, working on this, working on that, trying to manage this, trying to manage that, and being like Rohan, you're you're burning yourself out. Like, stop. Self care (laughs) is important. (laughs) Um, I want to get out of this. I want people to learn. I want the community to grow because I feel like a lot of times, especially between Black and Asian communities, there is a lot of just misunderstanding and a lot of miscommunication based on white education and i want that oh my that gosh yes
0: yeah. <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah like even like think about like you know the la riots how if anyone's seen the documentary uh, asian americans that pbs put on a lot of that was based on misinformation you know put in the papers
0: yeah that's you that's know? that's my Time period. That's when I'm coming of age. Is the L.A. riots and the fact that as a, 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 a Japanese specifically, but as an Asian Black mixed kid during that time when Koreans are literally on rooftops shooting Black people, you know, and vice, you know, vice versa, there's violence being done across the board. And it really is because of the community, the, what they're learning from White people about Black people. It, it was really tough because then people are looking at me a kind of way, and I'm like, well, I'm not Korean. Like that was my only argument at 12 years old. Is I'm not Korean. I don't know what to tell you. Um, But but the relationship between uh, the Korean communities that border Black Hoods is so toxic, or at least well, I I can't speak as much for now because I'm not a part of that community. But it was so toxic back then that it was only bound to happen that it would spark up right there at that particular border what, where it did and what what happened there. And a lot of like you said, the mis- education When these are communities that actually have a lot of parallel in terms of the treatment that they receive by the white powers that be. And if they joined in solidarity more frequently, they would realize how much crossover there is, both in just sense of community and family and things like that, but also just generally that we are all under attack by the same power structure. It's amazing. I, I think it's important Definitely. to be talking about that now because that wasn't talked about back then. It was
1: Exactly. Not. Exactly. And I think it's on top of that, it's so it's so important that we understand. This is a lesson I learned as a kid from um, this powerful, amazing Jamaican woman. um, And she always said, you know, when when we minorities come together, we are the majority. And that I think will be... (laughs) Right? Like, And and we proved that. We proved that in the midterm elections when we Mm -hmm. elected a record number of women to Congress, a record number of people of color to Congress. Mm -hmm. Like we... When we all join forces, we have the majority power. We have the maximum power. Right. You know? So, and that has to be built up through us learning about each other. And as you said, the parallel struggles are so clear. But of course, these are things that are being erased. Like the whole legacy of lynching of Chinese people out in the right. West.
0: You're right. That's absolutely. not taught.
1: Exactly. That's erased. Like, we don't talk about the L.A. Chinatown massacre or the fact that they didn't even bother to give a proper body count. Like, it's between 20 and 20 men. We have no idea. Like, there's that. But then we will, you know, talk about the lynchings of black people in the South and slavery in the South, not necessarily slavery in the North. Right. That was also real. This was also happening. <laughs> right. And this is, is, that's how this miseducation triangulates us. This is how this miseducation tells Asian people, well, you know, lynching is not your narrative. Racial violence is not your narrative. So you're not on the same bottom rung of this racial hierarchy. It's so Which baffling. It's yeah. so
0: baffling. I mean, they literally built camps just to put Japanese people in it who were born here in America just on the off chance that they might be loyal to an emperor that they weren't living under. Like I never
1: knew, right?
0: You know, like or yeah, never some of them (laughs) didn't even speak Japanese. They were Americans and they literally built camps to do that. The Chinese were massacred all throughout the West. All throughout the West. And yet those ideas of lining up with the white people who were doing this against black people who didn't have the power to do the things that the white people did to the to the Chinese, especially here in the West or the Japanese throughout the United States. It baffles me that that's missing. It baffles me that that's missing. It's so evident to me. And I don't know if it's more evident to me because I've, you know, LA riots woke me up at 12 years old that I understood that there was something going on there that I needed to learn and understand. I don't think there's anything special about me knowing that. And yet, There's a whole heap of Asian people that I know that don't seem to understand the history of anti-Asian-ness here in this country. Exactly. Um, But yeah, the majority power and uniting and solidarity, I think, has spoke volumes already. If we can tap into that a little bit more, which I think you are absolutely doing with your event. I have heard that some of, based off of the post that you made, that there are some mirror events popping up in other spots. I think Texas is one of them. I think LA or hopefully LA will be one of them. If it makes sense, absolutely to do it here in LA too, because we, almost every black community has a bordering Asian community here in LA. Like, come on. Um, So I, I really hope that that work gets done. And I am so appreciative of you taking the time to jump on with me and talk a little bit about it. Um, I want to get a little bit, uh, we're going to come to the end of time soon, but I do want to get a little bit more about you. Do you feel like in this work that you're doing right now that you've found your tribe?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because like I moved to New York maybe two years ago um, to pursue my career um, in dance. And, you know, I was really struggling having to find other dancers who kind of thought like me or... Mm -hmm you know, were in the studio with me all the time. And especially, especially in the dance world, like the toxic colonial structures, the toxic white dominant structures really force you to be silent and really force you to not say anything because, you know, people are always like, oh, if you say something, you're going to get blacklisted from work because people are going to talk about you and that'll be that. Right. But like, you know, now that I... So every Thursday, for example, um, I march um, at Stonewall and seeing other artists who are also in the industry coming out and not giving a fuck about that, you know, <laughs> like being put up and shut up sort of narrative. Hey,
0: right. Talk about you know. an industry that needs to be decolonized. The dance, oh. the dance industry is definitely taking too long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for real <laughs> like, that's awesome i didn't know that they were doing that that they were doing that every thursday i thought i thought that yeah. was sort of a once a month thing or something i don't know, oh why no, I don't know every that. thursday at stonewall yeah awesome yeah so and pride being another thing that got colonized because it was literally started through black and brown mm. trans folks getting up there fighting for everybody and now it's been co-opted um, Retweet that. Retweet that. <laughs> um, well, okay. I want to talk to you for like 14 more hours, but we don't have that kind of time. So <laughs> let's uh let's make sure that we get to the final question and then we'll definitely have you back because there's um I'm I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing for Our intersectional communities. Absolutely. I think it's important. I'm glad that you're out there doing it and also trying to pursue your career as well. I think it's possible to do that. It's a lot of work and it's exhausting, but you're wearing it. And I appreciate that you are doing that work. Uh, What I do Mm -hmm. like to ask all of my guests before we wrap up, um, because we do sometimes talk about trauma or difficulties having to deal with uh, how we maneuver the world as mixed folks, what do you love most about being mixed?
1: I love that being mixed, you are one of these, one of the most unique entities on this planet. Like, you are living proof of a beauty that exists outside of white ideas of race and racism. Like, you are literally proof that we can exist and be beautiful. And these, colonial ideas of boundaries between our peoples do not exist. Like these were installed by colonizers and looking even at like ancient history, how, you know, ancient China and ancient Africa and ancient uh, Hindustan were all trading well before the Europeans right. even like arrived, you
0: know, <laughs> like when they were still hiding in caves, all terrified right. of the sun <laughs> before, they,
1: before, before the North Africans gave them soap.
0: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: before they were given soap.
0: <laughs> oh
1: <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Sad truth, right? Uh, it's, you are you are the legacy you're a centuries old legacy and it's so beautiful. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, that is an amazing answer. I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell everybody how to find the event that's happening in New York on October eleventh and where they can who they can follow, what they can follow to keep informed about what you got going on.
1: Yeah. So um you can Uh, follow the hashtag Blasian March. Um, That's B-L-A-S-I-A-N-M-A-R-C-H. Or you can follow the Instagram account Asians for Abolition. You'll also see all the information on that. For the in-person and the online events, um, there's an online fundraiser for Save Our Sisters New York. They are um, an organization dedicated to the protection and preservation of the lives of Black girls and women. And Donate to the fundraiser. Information is on there. Um, raffle items for the fundraiser include Queer Asian Art by Crystal Monkey Calligraphy. Um, and then we will also have a panel coming up, um, and you will have access to the screening of Jennifer Laude's documentary Call Her Ganda. Um, more details be posted on social media, on those accounts, on the hashtag, or you can also follow my personal account, which is Diary of a Firebird. <laughs> um, but yeah, for the in-person action, it's going to be October 11th at 3 PM at Cabin Plaza in Brooklyn, friends.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for doing this work and for jumping on with me last minute when we didn't know that that's what we were going <laughs> to be doing today. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to having you back and having you participate in some of our other things too with Militantly Mixed because we're family now, cousin.
1: We are fam, and I appreciate <laughs> you so much for taking the time to like hold space with me.
0: Absolutely. Militantly Mixed is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, The One. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed.